Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Galatians 5, 7 to 15. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. You don't hear that every day in church, do you? Well, before we jump in and look at this text, can I invite you to pray with me, please? Father, I pray that by your grace this morning, uh, you would remind us who you are and who we are in relation to you. We are your creatures, gloriously created in your image, but fallen in sin and apart from your grace without hope in this world. So I pray that that by your spirit, through your word this morning, you would move in our midst to assert your lordship of love over our lives, to open up our, our, the eyes of our hearts, to see Jesus Christ crucified and risen, to redeem us from our sin and to reconcile us unto you. Lord, move in our hearts. Make us a humble people who are eager to receive the word implanted. And I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, I have a theory that um, the Apostle Paul was a sports fan. And, and I, I actually have biblical proof for that. Um, Paul loves to use sports imagery and athletic imagery when he's describing the Christian life. He describes it in terms of wrestling. He describes it in terms of boxing. Who knew? Um, And he describes it in terms of drawn from the whole kind of Olympic games, track and field events, that sort of thing. But his most favorite uh, sort of sporting image, athletic image, is drawn from this world of uh, foot racing, running. And in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 25, he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So the Christian life, we need to think about it this morning as as a race. We're running a race. Uh, Obviously, I'm extremely athletic, so for me this is easy. But um, we need to get our minds around the Christian life as a race. But you might ask yourself, okay, you know, what kind of race are we talking about? And uh, that's a good question. That's something we need to think about. 
because you train for different races in completely different ways. And so I think we need to really remember that when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to living the Christian life, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think ultra marathon, not 100-yard sprint. Okay? The Christian life is lived like an ultra marathon. It's, it's not the 100-yard dash, okay, or 100-meter dash, I guess, if I want to be correct. The Christian life, what I mean by that, it's not lived in these fits and starts of spiritual energy and experience. The Christian life is much more along the lines of what Eugene Peterson said. He said, it's a long emphasis. It's a long obedience in the same direction. This is endurance running. So the image, if you're maybe over 30, something like that, the image is uh, think Forrest Gump, not Usain Bolt. You got it? I just, everybody under 35 just said, what? Look up Forrest Gump. So that's important for us to remember. And, And here at this point in the book of Galatians, Paul is concerned. He's been concerned since the first verse. But here his concern is that these people to whom he's writing are not going to be able to complete the race. They're not going to cross the finish line. He says that they started so well. And now they just seem to run off course and they're moving in the wrong direction. Look at what he says in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So Paul recalls here for us in verse 7, when he came into Galatia, his, his missionary journey there, he's preaching the gospel, and people heard it. They came to Christ. They repented. They believed. They loved the truth. They embraced it. And that, in turn, radically changed their lives. These people got on board. They lined up their lives with the truth of the gospel. It transformed them. They went from worshiping pagan gods to worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And you saw that emphasis. He says, you were running so well. Not so much anymore, however. Now, something's gone really wrong with the race. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? What's happened to you guys? See, we've talked about this a lot, and I'm going to try and minimize it in the message. But what's happened is a false teacher or perhaps a number of false teachers led by a a leader of false teachers, I don't know, Uh, has come along to the church and is teaching that uh, we need to require circumcision and the works of the law and to add that to our faith in Jesus in order to be made right with God. That's the whole problem here in Galatia. And and Paul, to kind of stretch his imagery a little bit, that's the equivalent for someone to come and teach that instead of faith alone and Christ alone, to say that we've got to add the works of the law to our faith in Christ, to teach that is like some sort of, um, some sort of imposter, uh, some sort of Olympic official imposter coming onto the track 
of, a, of an Olympic marathon and then redirecting all the runners off the track so they're, they're really running in the opposite direction. That's how serious this is. Now the truth that Paul is talking about here in verse 7 is just a short way of talking about what he's mentioned twice earlier in the letter. He's talking about the truth of the gospel. So this is the message of salvation through faith in Jesus who lived and died and rose again in order to redeem us. And so this is the truth of the gospel. But you notice in verse 7, take another look at verse 7. He says that this is truth to be obeyed. In fact, if you you look at the logic of verse 7, Paul is saying that obedience to the truth is the equivalent of running well. So if we're not obeying the truth, we're not running well. That's the logic. Now, I can imagine someone this morning, given all that we've been preaching about an emphasis on faith, and boy, oh boy, does Galatians emphasize faith. Somebody might hear me saying what I just said and think, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Fred. I thought we were to believe the truth. And now you're telling us we have to obey it too? Aren't you just, aren't you just sneaking works into our faith? Well, no, I'm not. Let me explain. The, in the Bible, belief and obedience are really two sides of the same coin. We cannot say, imagine it for a moment, we cannot say that we believe, we trust, we have faith in the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. We can't say that and then say, yeah, but I don't want to obey him. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? And so, in the Bible, belief and obedience are really just two sides of the same coin. If we're unwilling, if we're unwilling to obey Jesus, it just means that we don't really believe in him. No matter what we say, talk is cheap. Now, Jesus puts this much more positively than I am when he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, one reason I think we have so much trouble understanding or really getting a hold of what the Bible teaches, what I've just said about this kind of two sides of the same coin, belief and obedience. One reason why I think we have so much trouble with this is that in our modern thinking, and we could talk about how we got there, but we don't have time for that. Our modern way of thinking tends to sharply, um, put a sharp distinction between theory and practice. The Bible doesn't make that sort of sharp distinction. Here's the thing. The, the truth about Jesus Christ is not, is emphatically not some sort of abstract, disembodied theory we can just play around with in our minds. It's, that's not it. 
the, the truth of the gospel is truth about the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and blood and was physically crucified on a cross for our sins. This is not abstraction. The truth about Jesus is is truth about a person. And it, it comes to us with an obligation attached. We have an obligation to respond. You can reject him. But I would suggest, if you have understood anything about what the Bible is teaching, you certainly, you can't ignore him. That's just, that lacks integrity. I would suggest the thing to do, given the claims of Jesus and what he's done for us, is that we, we submit to him. That's the only reasonable response. He's the Lord of glory. He is your creator. He has redeemed you with his precious blood. The truth about Jesus Christ, every week I preach this, it, it's, I'm not in, it, this is not just disseminating information. The message every week demands a response of us. We need to submit to it, not because I'm so persuasive, but because it's the word of God. It comes with his authority. Jesus reigns. He reigns over every square inch of your existence. It's ridiculous completely to say that we believe in him in some way, but are unwilling to submit entirely to him. That's Paul's point. That's the problem. Let me unpack three things that I think we need to learn this morning about false teaching. This is really about false teaching in the church. And I want to put us on guard here. Because remember, the false teaching that Paul is talking about was in danger of moving them completely off the course so that they're not going to finish the race. Only those who persevere to the end, Jesus said, will be saved. We can have a great response one week and get distracted and get off course. It doesn't matter how we start. It's whether we finish. That's all that matters. And so I want to share three things about false teaching that we ought to get on board and, 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 and use this to guard ourselves. First of all, there's the origin of false teaching. Secondly, the effects of false teaching. And thirdly, the future of false teaching. So let me unpack these. We'll look first at the origin of false teaching. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Paul says, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So here's the thing about false teachers. They never say, hey, you want to take on board some false teaching? You know, false teachers come. They're very persuasive. What they say is very plausible. It, it's, it's very believable. And this is why biblical ignorance sets you up to be completely bamboozled by some persuasive, sweet-talking, ear-tickling false teacher. If you don't know your Bible, you're, you're just, it's trouble waiting to happen. This is why we preach every week from the Bible, from a text of the Bible. We're not just sharing sort of, these aren't spiritual TED Talks. 
This is Bible exposition and application so that we get a sense of how the Bible's logic moves through texts to teach us how to read it better. That's my main goal on Sunday morning. How can we become better readers of the Bible? And so where was I? They come at us, they, they're persuasive. And Paul says, it's, this is not, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, ultimately, the one who calls us is God himself. You see, Paul, or sorry, God calls us to himself through the proclamation of the message about Jesus Christ crucified and risen and reigning. The Spirit of God accompanies the preaching of the gospel of God to call us to God himself. That's God working through the message. And so God gives us the grace to believe and to see and to embrace and to trust the gospel as the Spirit works through the word proclaimed. And that's what Paul's remembering here, what happened. Paul called these people, and they started so well. But now they're being persuaded by someone other. Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. See, the message about Jesus Christ is a message of God's grace. God's unfathomable favor upon those who certainly do not deserve it. It's a message of grace in that God would look down upon someone like myself and forgive me completely, utterly, totally. There is no condemnation upon me because I and you are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And that's such good news from somebody who's lived the way I've lived. And that's great news for some of the way that you guys have lived the way you lived. And, and even if you're not tuned in to, you don't have a messy, ugly past, that's better news than you realize. And so there's this great news. God has called us by his grace to Jesus Christ to believe. But here's the thing about all false teaching. All false teaching minimizes or denies the grace of God in some way. So, by the false teachers here adding circumcision and works of the law, the false teachers in Galatia were saying that God saves us and accepts us on the basis of what we are able to do, not on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. Do you hear the difference? See, that sort of teaching about what we can do, what's it do? It appeals to our natural tendency, doesn't it, to trust in my favorite trinity, me, myself, and I. We just, we're just loaded up this way. We are spring-loaded to trust in me. And that's why this sort of teaching, that's the problem here. It's not the specifics. It's the, it's the tendency to just put the keys to the car back in our hands and say, you drive it. I'll sit in the back. It doesn't work that way. We are called to trust entirely, completely, totally, continually in all things. Trust Jesus alone. Now, that's hard. 
That's why this, this language, these, these false ideas become so persuasive to us because we get off track. It's hard to run an ultramarathon. We begin to think, oh, I want to stop for one of those sugar drinks. And then the next guy says, oh, you want to come and, you know, let's go for a walk in the neighborhood. And then before you, I forgot even I'm running a marathon. Look at what Phil Riken says. Whenever we are persuaded to trust ourselves rather than trust Jesus, the persuasion is not divine, but demonic. I think that's what Paul is implying here. Second thing I want us to see this morning are the effects of false teaching. We've considered the origin of false teaching, now the effects of false teaching. Paul goes from the race course here to the bakery. Look at verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, you take just that little pinch of leaven and you put it in some dough, a batch of dough, and what happens? It causes the the whole lump of dough to rise. And that's the effect of false teaching in the church. It doesn't take much. A little bit of false teaching can spread through and contaminate the entire community of believers. It doesn't take much. Paul uses this same proverb elsewhere, specifically in 1 Corinthians 5, he warns about the corrupting influence of tolerating sexual immorality in the church. Here's what he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been Sacrifice. Now, he's drawing on imagery from the Passover. See, before the Israelites were set free from their slavery in Egypt, they observed the Passover, that time when the angel of death passed over their homes because they had slaughtered the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and thus they lived and the Egyptians died. And they celebrated the Passover with unleavened bread. And Paul is using that imagery here, and he's talking about leaven, the leaven of sin and the level, leaven of false teaching, and he's suggesting that we need to clean that out. We're to keep ourselves from the leavening, contaminating effects of sin and false teaching. <coughs> Pardon me. Why? Because Jesus Christ, who is our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he has been sacrificed in order to cleanse us from these things. See, it's a denial of the lordship of Jesus. It's it's a refusal to obey the truth. In particular here, that the false teaching was to, to... Uh, emphasize the need for Christian men to be circumcised. Now, that may seem like a very odd requirement, but let me remind you that circumcision was a very important, I would say even necessary requirement to be a part of the covenant people of God uh, for the Israelites, for, for the Jewish people. And so these teachers have come along and they're trying to Judaize the Christians so that they could be identified with the people of God. Seems like a nice thing to do, except it cuts them off from the grace of God. It cuts them off from the redeemed people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul Paul puts, he helps us to see, if we accept circumcision, what are you really taking on board here? 
In Galatians 5, 3, it says, everyone who accepts circumcision is obliged to keep the whole, that means the whole Mosaic law. You don't want to go there. You can't do that. Nobody's been able to do that, except for one. See, if, if we take on board the keeping of the law, what we do is we nullify the grace of God. We deny the truth that Jesus Christ alone is the only one. The only one who has ever been able to fulfill the law. And we say, no, he didn't. We can do that. And we can't. Nobody's ever done it but him. So what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is just is think about with you, what are the, what, what are, what are the false teachings that we p- find persuasive in our own day? What interferes with our obedience to the truth of the gospel? Um, what beliefs are so plausible in our culture that we might find it easy to adopt them and then to, to see the, the church corrupted by them? Well, there are a lot. <laughs> there are a lot. But I just want to sort of share four areas where I think we do see this. And they touch on the areas of spirituality, morality, authority, and adversity. So, first, spirituality. Uh, Spirituality is hip. It's chic. Everybody's into yoga, mindfulness, and meditation. And there are Christian versions of all of those things. And everybody these days, you know, it's, it's hip to be, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. Everybody is into spiritual experience that make them more in touch with themselves. They make them, makes, help them to be more tolerant. But what they will not absolutely tolerate are any claims that are too specific or too exclusive. See, we like our spirituality really vague and fuzzy. We don't want anything too defined. And that would rule out everything in the Bible, the gospel, Jesus, God. <laughs> um, so, so we really find this, this sort of influence of spirituality coming. Here's the thing. We would rather be, we would rather be, uh, we'd rather feel good than be good. We'd rather be happy than holy. And spirituality is just the recipe for that. Second thing, morality. Some people just look at Jesus and they think, what a great moral teacher. What a good example we should follow. You know, if I mind my P's and my Q's and I keep my nose clean, surely God is going to accept me, right? You know, I, I, I may not be as good as Mother Teresa, but at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. It, always, hey? Adolf Hitler. Maybe today it's Donald Trump. I don't know. But that's the, that's the trope. And yet, it's got nothing to do with the gospel. That's just, I don't know how anyone can read the Bible and even come up with that view. Thirdly, and this is the real biggie, is the issue of authority. The issue of authority, we could spend a lot of time on here. You see, you and I exercise our authority whenever we assert our sovereign right to choose. We like being in control, don't we? 
we like to determine what's right and wrong for us. And as a result, we like certain things the Bible teaches, but we're not as keen on some of those other things the Bible teaches. We like, for example, everybody likes what Jesus said about love. People are maybe not so keen on what Jesus said about marriage, human sexuality, and health. Is that your choice? Do you get to choose the ones you like and reject the ones you don't? Well, then you can't in any imaginable way consider yourself a Christian. See, yeah, it, this is where it comes up, and I, you hear a version of this all the time. You know, whenever you bring the Bible to bear in that, those kinds of conversations with people that are looking at things that really, the, the bottom line is we want to preserve our own authority. Here's what you get. Well, that's just your interpretation. I, last week, you know, or who are you to judge? Well, I'm nobody. But if I'm, if I'm speaking accurately for the one who will judge us all, might be worth listening to if it's in accordance with the scriptures. You know, somebody said once, talking about a pastor, you know, are you the guy with all the answers? And he says, no, I'm speaking for that guy. Final one is uh, the, the problem of adversity. And this is a big one. You see, many of us have been led to believe that surely God doesn't want us to suffer. He only wants what's best for us, and I'll decide what that is. It includes a regular vacation, a lot of money in my bank account, a late model car, and, you know, fill in the list. People think that God doesn't want us to suffer. You know, obviously what we want, he wants us to be healthy. He wants us to be successful. And here it is. He wants us to live up to our fullest potential as I determine it. I would suggest to you that's got nothing to do with the gospel. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. And yet, it's, it's just, you hear it. It's this sort of therapeutic, psychologized, new age claptrap that makes its way into the church. Now, I get it. These are kind of stereotypes. But I encounter versions and variations of these with alarming and frustrating frequency. And to the degree that they're present in us, in our church, it will leaven the whole lump. It will affect us. It will hamper our ability to obey the truth. I want us to finish the race. It doesn't matter how we start, right? want us to finish well. So let me finish with the future of false teaching. This is my third point. And perhaps I should call this the future not of false teaching, but of false teachers. Paul says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So Paul expresses first his confidence in these Christians to whom he's writing that they're going to come around. They're going to hear what he's saying. They're going to discern that this is the word of God and they're going to get back on the race course and start heading toward the finish line properly again. Now, lest we get the wrong idea, you know, Paul is not confident in his 
capacity to persuade others. He's not confident in the capacity of these Christians to whom he's writing to figure things out for themselves. Paul's confidence is only and always in the Lord. So in Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure or I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. This has got to be the confidence of every Christian. Certainly should be the confidence of every pastor. Otherwise, you'd go crazy. At the end of the day, no matter how diligent any one of us are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we must have an ultimate confidence that God is the one who has begun a work in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That's the bottom line. Now, it might be worthwhile at this point saying a word about false teaching and the providence of God or the purposes of God. If you read any book in the New Testament, you'll see that false teaching is nothing new. It's there right from the beginning. And what might be the purpose of God in allowing dangerous false teaching to even exist? Good question. There's a lot of ways that we could answer it. But let me suggest one. I think too often we take the truth of the gospel for granted. And when we take something for granted, we tend to assume it. We tend to forget it. We tend to ignore it. But when that truth, that truth that is our hope and our very life, when that truth is challenged or threatened by lies and falsehoods and heresies, then I think Christians throughout the ages have been forced to look at this book again, closely, carefully, prayerfully, desperately, in order to see how what the Word of God says to this thing that... Here's the thing. We often smell a heresy before we realize what it is. People that know their Bibles might not be able to describe what that false teaching is, but they can smell something's a little off. It's like that food that is in your hamper that's been sitting there a little bit too long. That was funny. And, um, And so they smell that, and they go to their Bibles, and they begin to think it through. And God has done this over and over and over again in the history of the church. False teaching, heresy, Lies have arisen, and Christians have gone to their Bibles. See, the thing is, we don't appreciate what we have until it's threatened. You see, just as our bodies need to develop antibodies by fighting off viruses and germs, so the church grows stronger in her faith by fighting off lies with the truth. Now look at verse 10. Paul's not just confident that they're going to persevere and come around. Look at verse 10. He says, And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. See, false teachers, he says, will bear the penalty. I'm confident of this. Now, that word there, penalty, is the Greek word for judgment. See, at the end of the age, the Lord will judge, and his truth will reign. And that's, we've got to look to the eschaton. But in the meantime, in verse 12, Paul, Paul expresses his frustration and annoyance. 
I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now talk about a cutting remark. I had to. (laughs) And I won't say anything more about that. That's just an uncomfortable verse. What I want to do is just look at the conclusion. Look at verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, before I met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, yeah, I preached, I insisted upon circumcision because if you're not circumcised, you cannot be part of the covenant people of God. I insisted on it wherever I went. But his point is here that if he were still insisting on circumcision, he wouldn't be experiencing persecution. So the question is, why is he being persecuted? The answer, I think, he identifies here as the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. The word here translated as offense is the Greek word scandalon from which we get our word scandal. Paul uses this word a number of times in his writing and including 1 Corinthians one twenty three, where he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandalon to Jews and folly to Gentiles. See, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is folly to Gentiles because there is no way they could even begin to try and conceive of a divine savior who became fully human and suffered the most Uh, degrading and ignominious form of death imaginable. They couldn't begin to hardly wrap their minds around that. That's folly. That's foolishness. That's ridiculous. And it's an offense or a stumbling block to Jewish people because of what Deuteronomy 21 says, that everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. But if you remember Paul's argument in chapter 3, verse 13, that's his point. (laughs) Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? How? By becoming a curse for us. See, what was a stumbling block to the Jews because of Deuteronomy 21 becomes the word of grace and salvation to those who believe. These are the reasons why it's difficult for anybody it seems ridiculous. But let me just conclude with this. The ultimate reason why the message of the cross is offensive, and this is why Christians have been persecuted throughout the ages and still are today. The reason why the message of the cross is offensive is because the message of the cross is a slap in the face to our human pride and self-sufficiency. It is a slap in the face. It confronts our desire to have a sort of do-it-ourselves spirituality. It tells us that our morality will never make us right with God. It cuts the legs completely out from under our own determination to be authoritative with all of its rights and privileges. 
And the cross utterly decimates our idols of comfort and security. When Jesus said, follow me, he said, take up a cross and die. Let me close with a quote from Phil Riken. He says, to preach the cross is to preach salvation in Christ alone. It is to preach that only his sacrificial death is sufficient to atone for sin. It is to preach salvation by his infinite worth rather than by our unworthy merits and efforts. There is nothing we can do to make things right with God, but God has made things right with us through the bloody death of his son. This is not a theory I present to you for your consideration. This is a message that demands our response. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us the grace? Right now, I pray. Would you give us the grace to respond by embracing this, our only hope? Your son, who lived the life that we've all failed to live, who died the death that each of us deserved to die, but then who rose again victorious from the dead to reconcile us to you, to bring us to you as your children. Lord, would you move in our hearts to trust, to believe, to embrace, and to submit to this glorious good news of the truth of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.